40% of black and brown businesses failed during COVID. We had a 93% survival rate of all of our businesses during COVID. And so we believe that there's something more than just learning how to put together a pitch deck and starting a business, but it's how you actually operate and scale. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Melissa Bradley, a serial entrepreneur and champion of entrepreneurship for women and people of color. Melissa is our first guest in a three-part series highlighting women founders and funders. Melissa created 1863 Ventures, a nonprofit that helps underserved entrepreneurs move from high potential to high growth. She also co-founded Eureka, a platform that provides support for small to medium-sized businesses. I hope you enjoy the conversation and feel fired up to support this tenacious and inspiring community. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us on our Women on the Move podcast. It is great to speak with you today. Thank you. I'm very excited. Very excited. I would love to start out with your background so we can get to know you a little bit better. So you've been running nonprofits and working on social entrepreneurship since you were in college. So it's been quite a while. And I would love to understand, you know, what sparked this entrepreneurial spirit for you? Uh, So many things. You know, I'm originally from New York, spent quite a bit of time in New Jersey as well. And my mom was adamant about me going to private school. And I would say the biggest spark was being surrounded by folks who were both wealthy and learning that the source of their wealth had come from this freedom and independence that their parents ran their own companies. And I was like, wow, okay, so we, I could have a job that I go to every single day, get a fixed rate and be relatively happy, or I could solve a problem, start a business and have even more resources. And it was important because I grew up, my father died when I was three months old of a massive heart attack. So I grew up in a single parent household. My mom did not finish college because she dropped out to take care of her grandmother who was dying. And that was what you did back in the day. And she cleaned houses on the weekend. And so my entire life was spent growing up and really seeing the distinction between the haves and the moderately have nots. So the motivator for me was always to figure out how do I master this economy and how do I not be poor and recognize that as I went through high school and certainly by the time I got to college, that one of the best ways based on my personality, which is not taking orders very well and recognizing that there was an opportunity to make a lot of money by figuring out how to solve a problem, meet people's needs. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I love the fact that it was that entrepreneurship that led you to those things versus a job and a big company, a path maybe that others had followed. And when you think about some of your experiences as a young entrepreneur, how did that really influence your experiences today and the things that you still do? Yeah. So when I first got to Georgetown, I, I started companies right away. It wasn't cheap. Uh, still not cheap, but it wasn't cheap. And so I <laughs> became a bartender, not that I knew what I was doing. And then I realized, huh, I can make more money if I did this without the intermediary. So I started getting upperclassmen and had a bartending service. And then I had a dog walking service. And then I had a lawnmower service. If anybody's been to Georgetown, people are very meticulous about their lawns and very much meticulous about their dogs. And so I always had other people working for me throughout my freshman year. And just kept going and still had my own job, still had a work-study job, but just continued to do that and realize that two big lessons. One is that if you can find the right motivation, which was not always money, you will hook people for life. And I had some students who just needed the money. I had other students that said, I don't need the money. I just hate 
having nothing to do, or I hate being relegated to do this other stuff because my parents said I had to have a job. And so they enjoyed dogs or they enjoyed something they could actually finish in, in a weekend. And then I realized from the consumer side, they just wanted to know that somebody cared as much as they did about their dogs and about their lawn and about showing up with good customer service. And so I was like, wait a minute, this is not as hard as people make it seem. Now, there were some bumps in the road, but I realized if I could manage supply and demand and find what the motivations were for each people and not assume it was money and speed and being cheap, I actually could get this done. That is incredible. You figured this out at such an early age. So not only the client piece of it, but how you might use the same customer base from one business to another business. And you are managing people at such an early age. That is phenomenal. I'm not sure I did that very well. I'll be honest with you. But I don't think we had pagers in the beginning. So it was like calling people or banging on their door saying you have 15 minutes to get to your assignment, but they always got paid on time. So Right. The important thing. So who's inspired you along your career journey? I think my biggest inspiration is my mom. I hear lots of young people still, but certainly in my cohort at Georgetown say like, I want to do this, but my parents want me to do this. I remember literally having my first lemonade stand and my mom said, you know, hope you have fun. I don't know if you're going to make any money. It's hot as heck. There's several other people on the block who are doing it, but I hope you have fun. And I think that there was always this risk tolerance that she instilled and this doing it, not just because I have to, but because I really enjoy it. And I give her a lot of credit because I'll never forget one day she bought a map of all the presidents in the United States. And she's like, oh, here you go. And I put it on the floor and I was like, wow, there's a bunch of old white men. And she said, well, you know, maybe one day that'll change. Maybe one day you'll be president. I was like, well, I don't know about all that. But I appreciate that what taught me was just because you don't see yourself doesn't mean you can't be there. And obviously it was a great privilege when I was able to serve in the Obama administration and got my mom to meet him because she walked to him and said, I've been waiting for you all my life. And he said, thank you for waiting. And I just think that, you know, that moment came full circle of somebody teaching me, you can do anything you want. Even if you do not see yourself in that particular position, you can do it. Well, now you are really helping so many people in the companies and organizations that you have launched. And so I'd love to talk about a few of those, starting with 1863 Ventures. So tell us about what you're trying to do with this organization and who you're targeting. Because what I understand is your target is the new majority entrepreneurs. So tell us more about what that means and who those folks are. You know, 1863 Ventures actually started as a class project. I was a professor at Georgetown. Every summer I would take undergraduate and graduate students who were interested in impact. And I would call all my friends in the DC area and get them to do projects where they would get paid for and or credit. And so we did strategic plan for Latin American Youth Center. We did business plans in partnership with a local score office. And so this was a project where we said the students voted on doing some kind of entrepreneurship activity east of the river. And so they had to go over there. I taught them how to get on the metro. They went over there. I told them how to be safe, how not to be there after dark, how to knock on doors and how to put together this project. And when we ran the project, it was two days. And I was like, I think that's a lot, but we'll see who shows up. And it was a Friday and Saturday. And it was typical conversations with other entrepreneurs trying to inspire. And then we had a pitch competition where the neighbors got to vote on what business they wanted in their neighborhood. We had a 162 people on the first day, we ran out of food and we had 137 people on the second day. And when it was done, they said, well, this was great. Now what you're going to do? And I was like, this was a student project. I'm not really sure, but realized with all the people looking at me, we decided to start something, had no idea what we were doing. We just started it. And so it started as project 500 and we made a bet with the city that if we found 500 entrepreneurs, they would begin to change policy because so many of the policies were focused on micro entrepreneurs. And what I saw show up in that room were black and brown 
young entrepreneurs living east of the river who are making $500,000, a million dollars a year in businesses, mostly doing government contracting and construction. And their biggest complaint was there were no programs to support them. So I said, give us three years. And if we do that, you promise to change the rules. She said, absolutely. So every Saturday morning, myself and my student assistant would go to Southeast DC and train for four hours. And it was come one, come all. And in three years, we realized if we found it, we would do it. We found 527 entrepreneurs in 18 months. Well, not only did the mayor then change her policies, and now we have programs that focus on giving venture to entrepreneurs and really seeding CDFIs to give larger uh, loans. I was like, wait a minute, this is people need this help. And so we started 1863 Ventures. And ironically, JP Morgan Chase was our first grant. We think we have three areas of quote unquote competitive advantage. We don't do startups. So 88% of the ecosystem organizations in this country focus on startups, which is great, except then you see a correlation of why over 50% of businesses fail within five years. So we take businesses two years old and plus, but a minimum of 100,000 ARR. The second thing is in my students' lab, but I'm an entrepreneur snob. I believe if you have not been an entrepreneur, you cannot teach somebody how to be an entrepreneur. Not that you don't have the skills, but you don't have the same risk tolerance. And when it comes to finances, if you have never had to figure out how to pay $100,000 worth of bills with $25,000, it's a little hard. So we are all entrepreneurs. We've all, two of us have exited companies, two of us have been venture capitalists, and everybody else has started their own business. And the third thing is, we realize pitching is not how you run a business, but understanding operations. So we do not do pitching. We focus on who do you hire? How do you hire? How do you create a corporate culture? Marketing and sales and customer engagement on an ongoing basis. How do you actually manage your financials? Yeah, there's Quicken, but do you know what they say about you when you try to get funding? And so it's working because 40% of black and brown businesses failed during COVID. We had a 93% survivor rate of all of our businesses during COVID. And so we believe that there's something more than just learning how to put together a pitch deck and starting a business, but it's how do you actually operate and scale? We've expanded beyond DC. We have a national footprint. We even have entrepreneurs in Africa and Canada. And now we're running deep dive programs in DC and 14 other cities throughout the country. That is an amazing track record. And I love how you start with the building blocks of running the business. And I've seen on the website, you know, how you're offering that coursework and who you're able to learn from. I mean, it is deep and very robust. So I can absolutely see the value there. So you also have this 1863 fund and it's described as an alternative financing model for black and brown and women owned brands. Tell us what you mean by that. How is it different from other types of financing? Yeah, so our focus is not on venture capital. So recognizing that less than 20% of all Black entrepreneurs are in tech and even less for Latinx, the venture capital model doesn't work for our entrepreneurs. Our entrepreneurs are in construction. They're in supply chain businesses. They have products. They're CPG, they're retail, they're health, they're beauty, they're food and beverage. Those are scalable businesses, but they're not going to be unicorns. And so venture capital is actually cannibalistic and that by the time they get their second or third round of funding, they don't even own the company anymore. So we focus on revenue-based funding. Financing. We recognize that as our companies ebb and flow, right? The J curve, that's something we teach, but that's not real. It's a roller coaster. And so as they have those roller coasters, oftentimes we find that our entrepreneurs in particular, because it is legal, having worked in treasury, for banks to charge black and brown entrepreneurs more. We pay anywhere between one and a half to 2% more in interest. So we could literally not have a profit just because on debt service. So our focus is revenue-based financing. We take three to 8% on monthly, on profit only. So if you don't make any money, we don't get paid and you have up to five years to pay us. And knock on wood, 
no defaults to date. But we do that because we recognize there is an ebb and flow of getting your business up to speed. And just a quick example, we have an outbound relationship with Target. So 30 to 40% of our companies end up on Target.com or in the shelves. When you get your first couple of stores, you probably can manage that yourself. You get over 20 stores, there's nobody's going to give you a loan, right? If there's a CDFI, they cap it at 100,000. If you're a venture capitalist, you're not going to be big enough. So that's our sweet spot, helping those businesses scale. And once they get to 20, we've had several examples where we've got them in 20, 25 stores, they've been successful, then their next PO is 100 plus stores, and then they're on their way. That's when their J curve happens. So we de-risk the entrepreneurs to the training, invest in them through those cycles that no one else will cover, and then catch them on the upside in terms of repayment, as well as warrants so that we can participate in any equity that has gained in the company over those subsequent years. But initially, it's a lending model where you're lending against the revenue coming in and you're helping them smooth that out. And you're helping them. What I love about this, because it's so sustainable, you're getting them into those first stores or making sure that they get into a certain number of stores to sell and make that revenue you're looking at. So that is really amazing. How did that come to be? You know, Just having studied this for so long and understanding the early growth cycles of startups, did you understand that a new model had to come about? We did. I mean, I think in my prior life, I had been a venture capitalist and I just knew, you know, what my job was. My job was to go find somebody who I thought was going to make as much money as possible and make sure we got as much of it. And I'm not mad at that. I'm a capitalist, so I'm not mad at that. But I realized for these companies who are probably around 300,000 to a million, that sounds like a big number, but that's not a lot of money because that's top of line. By the time you get down to profit, sometimes you're negative. <laughs> and what we realized is that, again, CDFIs, while they're community development institutions, they still have a limited aperture for risk. And certainly based on where these entrepreneurs were, and we don't do credit scores. So many of them have emptied out their savings, emptied out their 5013s, leveraged their homes. They don't have great credit. So a bank wasn't going to do it. And so as a finance major said, what else can we do? And we looked around and realized there were only there's only three other firms that we could find that are really like double downing on this revenue-based financing. And interesting enough, I'm not surprised because our entrepreneurs, it took us three months just to educate our members on what it was, because I think a lot of them were afraid of debt. They're like, oh, I'm already over leveraged. And so I think it was really helpful to have this education period. And we did a fund zero so that people could understand and we could learn. And so now on fund one, we're learning and, and watching the mechanics. And I think the appropriate aligned capital for what they're trying to do makes all the difference in the world. And luckily, knock on wood, we're getting more people calling and saying, tell us more about this revenue-based financing model. We're really intrigued because we recognize equity is great. Don't get me wrong. I, I did well as a venture capitalist, but it's not for everybody. And talk about why for this particular target audience, it's even more important for them to maintain ownership in these companies and use that kind of financing model instead. Yeah, you know, I think we see a lot of success stories and, you know, a lot of women who have, you know, had exits and a lot of black entrepreneurs have had less but have exits. And the reality is when you get that check, like there's nothing there. And and having an exit myself, I was like, well, where's the rest of my money? And I realized that, you know, when you get money in, you got to give up something. And I didn't actually wasn't in money, but I realized once I had an exit, what I lost was not the money. What I lost was control because my focus and my first financial services company was about job creation. And we got acquired by a PE firm and they fired half the staff. And I was like, oh my God, that's not what that's not what this company was about. And so I realized that, you know, not only was this the financial piece, but it was the ownership piece that once it was no longer mine or I wasn't in control, I couldn't make sure the values that I had built this company on were sustained. And a lot of our entrepreneurs, I think it's natural amongst women entrepreneurs of color. Yeah, we want to make money, but we want to hire returning citizens. We want to help our community. We want to create jobs. We want to give back. We want to support local youth organizations. We want to help grow 
referrals groups. You lose control over that if you just don't own your company. And so I think for all the non-financial reasons, but the ability to use the company as a lever for social change, that often gets lost. So the goals for this is to create $100 billion in new wealth for new majority entrepreneurs by 2030. So that is a huge goal. And it's you've now have a community of 10,000 entrepreneurs in this ecosystem. So are you making the progress that you want to make? Are you faster than you thought? You know, where do you stand right now? So we're making progress. You know, I'll be honest, when I put out the number, my team looked at me and I was like, it's a number, right? It is nothing but a signal effect. And if we make it, we make it. If we don't, we don't, right? But I think the fact that it's even just people here and go, huh, she really thinks that's possible. We don't think she's crazy. I think it's just sent a different mindset of there is a belief and we know that there is that existence because there's trillions of dollars of pent up demand. Right now, we track, we have an annual impact report. We're averaging anywhere between 300 million to 400 million of new revenue generated every single year by entrepreneurs. We've actually now doubled the number of entrepreneurs we're going to serve this year. So I believe we're going to be pretty darn close. Am I 100%? No. But I think at this point, because there's such a lack of data around the power of women and entrepreneurs of color, if we can just put up some new data points to signal the power that exists in these communities, that's enough for us. And you make that goal really lofty. And even if you don't hit it, you're probably going to get farther than had you not kind of motivated the whole team to get there. So that's fantastic. Let's now talk about another company you founded called Eureka, which is, I think, in a similar vein, but a different kind of platform. So tell us about that and what kind of support Eureka provides to entrepreneurs. Yeah, so Eureka actually was born because I hooked up with another gentleman at a pitch competition where we were both celebrity guests, which is funny because neither of us are celebrities. And we started just talking about, he actually was at Facebook and he was saying like, I don't understand why these entrepreneurs are, you know, particularly the women and entrepreneurs of color. They're like, well, they're not, you know, that wasn't great. And I was like, that wasn't great. Dude, you have no idea where these people came from. And it was like, well, that's not a big enough market size. I'm like, okay, who are you and what planet are you from? And we did not get along at first. And so I finally pulled him aside at lunch. I was like, dude, I don't know what you're smoking out there in Silicon Valley, but let me explain to you what the pathway is for a black entrepreneur. Let me explain to you what my experience was as a female entrepreneur. And like, hopefully you'll readjust. And by the end of the week that we spent together, he was like, I want to learn. And he said, bring me some entrepreneurs. And so what we flew 50 black entrepreneurs out there, most of them were women, and he spent three days with them. And when it was over, he said, I have never learned so much in my entire life. And I said, hey, these are entrepreneurs who are going to make money, but they're not going to look like the companies that you see and that Facebook is acquiring. And at the time, he had a chance to create a small business program for Facebook. So he invited me to join him in that creation. We traveled across the country and did this program. And at the end, he said, I really want to do this. And he said, I got a friend of mine who sold the company. Company and he wants to do this too. And I was like, cool. I was like, but are you leaving your job at Facebook? He's like, absolutely. He said, what I did there was a project. This is how I want to spend the rest of my professional career. And he had already had some multiple exes, but you have shown me where I can actually add value. He said, my value is incremental in helping more Silicon Valley tech execs come through the door. He said, I'm enjoying it. I feel good about it. And I see the difference. So he left his job and we spent a year putting it together. And then we raised some venture capital in November, 2019, we launched. And the idea idea was to take what I had learned in 1863 and complement it because most accelerators are one-to-many model. And there are certain aspects of running a business. You just need one-to-one help. You need a deep dive in that expertise. And so I'm not a techie, but this tech platform allowed all accelerator programs to scale what they're doing. We essentially partner with accelerators and incubators all over the country. And now corporations and others who want to help women and entrepreneurs of color and provide a scalable platform where they have access to peers and colleagues 
via the app or on the website. There's always on coaching. So if you wake up in the middle of the night in a panic and you have a question about customer acquisition costs, you can log on and somebody is available to you. And luckily, post-COVID and post-George Floyd, we've deployed over $200 million in grant programs with large corporate partners, which has been great. So the impetus of helping next wave entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs of color, LGBTQ, all those who are typically ignored to give them the skills, the access to capital and the coaching they need to de-risk their businesses and keep going has been awesome. So Eureka has various program levels, right? Depending on what you need as an entrepreneur in terms of the coaching, as you mentioned, or getting access to other resources. How did your market research lead you to create that kind of tiered structure or any of the you know real priorities behind Eureka? So I'd say there's two pieces of data that we used. One is, as you can imagine, we went to Silicon Valley and said we wanted to build a tech platform for women entrepreneurs of color. People are like, are you people crazy? Like, who can afford that? And it was a clear underestimation of what the power of commerce that existed with women and entrepreneurs of color. And we had done research. They were like, nobody's going to pay for this. And I was like, oh, but they are. And we had done research that showed that that if an entrepreneur is able to achieve one more employee beyond themselves, there's a three to four X increase in revenue generated. And so if we could successfully do that, then we had these entrepreneurs hooked because we were putting them on the scalable path. The other piece was that we realized they were already spending over a thousand dollars a month on multi-level marketing schemes and other things that most of them were saying were not helping. I said, if we can prove our value both through performance and at a price point they can afford, this is a viable business. The second thing is that having done this work, all of us, all three of us as co-founders had been working with entrepreneurs, we knew that it's not about saying, hey, you can do it. It is about that is wrong. Here's how you fix the marketing strategy. And here's the template for you to move forward. It was all about application, not about teaching. And so while lots of other mentor programs say I need to help you in a year, we made a commitment that in any entrepreneur, every conversation, we would solve a single problem. And we made sure we had the right people to do that. So even during COVID, when we did not charge, we paid all of our coaches so they would show up and make sure they solve problems. And what we found is the entrepreneurs say, wait a minute, you guys are relatively cheap compared to what I was spending. The most it costs is to be 50 bucks on the platform and there's three tiers of membership. We also still have that standing commitment that one, you get a response to anything you put in the feed or in the chat within 24 to 48 hours. And every single session with the coach is not just to give you a bunch of homework, but to solve a specific problem. So across the platform, we have what we call discoverers, provers, growers, and scalers. Discoverers are just getting started, no revenue. Provers have some traction, but probably no revenue, but beyond the idea stage. Growers are several hundred thousand dollars and our scalers are over a million dollars and it works. And what's fascinating is Dave, who's one of my co-founders, had personally done some work with Kevin O'Leary to help his companies. And Kevin was like, well, wait a minute. Instead of me counting on a bunch of individuals, if you're telling me you have raised the bar for all of your coaches, I'll put all my companies. So we actually have all of Kevin O'Leary's Shark Tank companies on the platform as well, which is great because people are like, wait a minute, if you can help them grow, I know you can help me grow. I mean, so many things have come together now from your learnings, from what you're seeing in the market, from other entrepreneurs. That is great. And being on the platform, I can absolutely see you're not just putting out there articles and sort of high level things that people have to wade through and read, or there's a comment and a thread you have to go through. You're doing this one-on-one, very customizable coaching with urgency. I mean, really, it's a very unique model. I love that. 
you know, how does the work at Eureka complement what you're doing at 1863 Ventures? And how do you bring the two together to even help and create a wider ecosystem? It's actually created a lovely continuum of support. 1863 Ventures is a nonprofit organization. And, you know, we really gain traction by the number of people we put through. We serve a lot of people a year. And when they graduate, I'm like, wait, we got to go focus on the next group. We just don't have a large enough team to continue to do that coaching. And we had been outsourcing it to a variety of other groups who were good, but they were kind of this elongated coaching. I'm going to work with you for six months and people didn't get a problem solved for three months down the road. So it's been great because 1863 was the first customer. We were like, look, we'll pay for our entrepreneurs to be on your platform if you can solve their problem. And I think it's been a great proxy that we now have other organizations who are doing the same because we're saying, look, we're not trying to take your entrepreneurs away. We want you to do what you do best. But we know that once they finish that training program, you just don't have the capacity and the business model to support them. How do we continue to do that? And so it's been great because people were like, "Uh oh, they're trying. And I was like, we are not trying to run you out of business. And so now we have really deep relationships with some CDFIs who say, look, I do technical assistance, but you all are technical assistance as a service. I'm like, yes, you only have three coaches. We have 500 coaches. You can do both. And they're like, no, no, no. If Because if we can get them you know, right ready when they're about to get a loan and we can send everybody else to you as they prepare to get a loan, you're helping us get our money out the door and you're helping us save money and resources because we can focus on the entrepreneurs who are darn near ready to get a check. So it's been great because I think people find it as a complementary or supplementary service as opposed to being competitive. And when you're on the platform, everybody has their own community. And so people can come on and land in the community that they're partnering with we're not taking away any brand recognition or community sense. And then you just access our services. So it's actually worked out really well. So this might be a hard question because you've seen so many entrepreneurs, but what do you think the greatest needs are for entrepreneurs? And maybe it differs by stage and where you are, but are there some common themes, whether it's financing or some other support in the business that you just see over and over again? So this is going to sound trite, but they need honesty. We find that so many folks, and it's ironic that I say this, but in the world of entrepreneurship, particularly when it comes to women entrepreneurs of color, I think we have over-indexed on political correctness. And we say, oh, that was great. But you know darn well it was not great. And so we say, like, we're going to be honest with you. If that's not a good idea, we're going to tell you that's not a good idea and tell you three other ways that you can do that. And that evolved when we took the entrepreneurs to Silicon Valley. I took really, really good ones. And I took ones that had no clue. I was like, come on, I'm paying for you. Let's go. And it was a test of this model. And I got there and I was like, okay, they all made pitches. And they were, oh, these are really good. And we went to dinner. I said, you people lied. And they said, well, we didn't really know what to say. I said, say they suck. I was like, you make me, first of all, look like an idiot because I told them it sucked. But you got to be honest. That these folks are not going to grow if you're not honest. Now, you shouldn't walk around saying they suck, but you've got to be honest because for women and entrepreneurs of color, we do not oftentimes sit on a large amount of discretionary income. And if you're not honest with me, I am churning through dollars, wasting time on things that you have told me worked that you know darn well did not work. I said, so this is not about being polite. This is around how do you actually help them save money and expedite their growth? And so, that to me, I know it's going to sound crazy. Entrepreneurs need a lot of stuff, but what they need most is somebody being honest with them what they need right now. Because I think people jump to, well, I need access to capital. You can't get money from a business plan. You're not going to get money if you don't understand your customers. So no, you don't need money. You need the pathway to get money. And I find that we tend to pick topics when the reality is every entrepreneur is at a different stage. And you just need to be brutally honest and be a mirror for them and saying, this is why this is not working. Move on because you don't have time to waste and you don't have money to waste. 
as you're even talking about that, I'm thinking about how people need honesty just in their own careers. So women, people of color in the corporate workforce too, really need that to grow much in the in the way they would with a company. You know, along similar lines, what are some common mistakes that entrepreneurs make? I think there's three common mistakes. One is asking for money too soon. <laughs> if you don't have the right components, it's not just the need that gets a check written. It's really understanding the market and what's the opportunity and what's your competitive advantage. I think particularly for women of all colors, asking for too little. Oftentimes ask what we think we can get versus what we need. Evidence in the PPP program, right? The average loan for black and brown entrepreneurs is $5,000. I don't know what people did with $5,000 if they're running $100,000 companies. So I think being really clear, and you may not get it, but being really clear what you need. And then the final thing I would say is understanding just how to run a company. Like getting a massive amount of money is not creating a scalable business. So I think understanding what does it take to run a scalable business and being able to discern what aspects are you good at and what aspects are you not good at so that you know what your first hire should be. It should be who is going to continue to compliment you on this pathway to scale. So I've read some of your marks on entrepreneurship, and here are some that really strike me. You said, quote, entrepreneurship is not an intellectual exercise. It is rolling up your sleeves, is the ability to move quickly. It is the ability to lose it all or some. It is the tendency to hang on. I'd love that. I think it goes to exactly what you're talking about. It's the plan and the execution and getting things done. What qualities do you think that a great entrepreneur must have? Sometimes blinded optimism that, you know, no matter what everybody else says, if you believe and see it for yourself, then go for it. People told me yeah, there was no need for financial services. I was like, you're wrong. And my company was focused, laser focused on women who had kids. And they were like, you're wrong. I was like, no, I'm not wrong. And I wasn't wrong. I think the other thing is tenacity and resilience, because a lot of people are going to tell you no. No is no. It doesn't mean it's not right. It's just no. And that's based on their perspective, not yours. And then the final thing is self-awareness and know when it's not your time. Know when you're not the right person to do certain things. Know when it's time for you to get out the way. And so I think those are three key things that you have to have to be successful. You know, when you took venture capital for Eureka, I'm curious, you know, why was that important to you for that particular company at that particular time? I'll tell you, it was an argument. I was like, do we really need VC? But I also never built a tech business. When I understood what was going to happen, that not only we're building a tech platform, but we were building a platform. Right. I mean, the platforms were just emerging and that we, unlike a typical business, you know, you have customer segments. We had two sides of that platform. We had to curate coaches and entrepreneurs. And we would have to subsidize one to prove the value to the other. And so in that particular business, it made complete sense to go get venture capital. And we didn't, you know, we probably could have raised more money and we didn't because I was like, let's not drown in this. And let's make sure that we figure out how to get a pathway to cash flow positive, if not profitability, before we just go off asking for a lot more money. And uh, I'm happy to say that in our first year, we made $3 million. And in our second year, we are on track to make over 6 million bucks. So we did what we said, we're going to do. Congratulations. That's fantastic. So you have served as an advisor to many businesses, clearly, and you've done this also in the public sector as well. How important do you think mentorship is to entrepreneurs? And do you think people seek enough of this? You know, much like your comment that they might not seek or ask for enough 
financing? Do they seek help? I think it's gotten better. I mean, I would say about 10 years ago, I think because there was still this stigma that only crazy people started businesses or that, you know, folks from Harvard started businesses. And so I think people were afraid to ask for help because they were afraid that people would say, who are you to think you can start a business? I think now that entrepreneurship is actually a household name, there's television shows reinforcing it, there's diversity in who shows up. I think people are much more open to ask for help because they don't worry that people are going to make fun of them. I think the challenge, though, is that we're still trying to help people ask for the right help. You know, I I remember Georgetown, it was an informal workshop, but it was basically how do you ask for mentorship and coaching? And that's a skill because you say, will you be my mentor? People ask me all the time. I'm like, I guess, but what do you want me to do? And I think that one of the things that I'm hoping continues to improve is that people recognize you're not going to get everything from one person. So to really prioritize what is it that you need, find best in class of who you think that can provide that for you and treat it like a business partnership. I need to get from here to here in the next three months. Can you help me? And so it probably sounds hard, but I think there's this professionalization of what does it mean to be a coach and mentor that I hopefully think is good because it moves from a laissez-faire relationship of one-sided draining to a motivated outcomes-based partnership where hopefully both parties are getting something out of it. Yeah. So it sounds like you want both the seeker of the help, but also the coach to get better in terms of how they're delivering. With Eureka, are you looking at those coaches, what they're actually doing and having sort of any sort of feedback from them or measuring? So I run the impact team. So we run impact reports every month and every quarter. And so before anybody can be a coach, I don't care if you've been doing this for 20 years, you have to go through our training. You have to pass our cultural competency training. And we get to listen in on your first two calls. And we give you feedback and we get the entrepreneurs to give feedback. And then and only then are you allowed to be on your own. And even then you only get to coach one person for the first couple of months and then you can increase over time because they get paid. So we want to make sure that it's right. And then every quarter we do in a survey of all the entrepreneurs and say which coaches were great, which coaches weren't. And at any point in time, an entrepreneur can say, I don't want to work with this person anymore. And even if it's a good reason, we say, look, you give feedback. So we are very clear that from a platform model, that is our greatest asset. And so we put a lot of time in making sure that they feel supported and making sure they're delivering the type of service we've promised our customers. I love that. There is such QA. The quality assurance on that is really high. Well, so I'm curious, what are your hopes and goals for both the ventures? So, so 1863, as well as Eureka. So for 1863, my hope still remains we'll make $100 billion by 2030. So I'm going to hang on to that, or, or at least pretty darn close. And I think for Eureka, it's that we actually do two things. One, that we are wildly successful in terms of helping entrepreneurs and getting members on the platform, because I think that just sends a signal effect that there is a way to build a tech platform that is socially oriented, focused on impact and really solving problems. I think the second thing is, is that, you know, for reasons that have nothing to do with me personally, I hope we make a lot of money because for every venture capitalist that told us no, for every venture capitalist that would look me in the face and saying, well, you were an anomaly and there aren't more of you. I want us just to be wildly successful so that the next time a black a brown person, but more importantly, a female shows up in a venture capitalist office trying to support their community, it is no longer questioned. And I know there are so many women who have gone to Silicon Valley who are starting companies. And if they're pitching a man, he goes, well, I have to talk to my daughter, my wife. Well, that should not happen. You should just know that the markets that we represent, and most women entrepreneurs of color represent markets that are personal to them. You need to trust that it's not just a passion. We have done our homework. We know where the competitive advantage is and we're a better deliverer 
of those products and services than any man that's going to come through here. And you need to recalibrate your portfolios to invest in us. That is a great big system-wide goal. I mean, that is really trying to change a culture. You know, what can people do in general to support that mission? What, what can everyday people do, even if they're not entrepreneurs? You know, one is be mindful of purchasing power. If you believe in supporting women and entrepreneurs of color, then go the extra mile. I think the second thing is when you find yourselves in conversations and you find yourself places, insert success stories of women and people of color. And then the final thing is if you hear people say, well, I don't know any, work hard to find them. I mean, it's not as hard anymore. I mean, you used to have to dig, but we now have the internet. We all got Google and it's easy to find. Be an advocate. If you're not going to be a purchaser, if you're not going to be an investor, at least be an advocate. When you hear somebody saying, I'm looking for this company to so-and-so, I got a woman who does that. Really be vocal in helping to change the perception of what a successful entrepreneur looks like. I think they're all achievable. We can all each do something there. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such a pleasure. It is so inspiring to hear you talk and you're very infectious. So I think I'm going to go out right now and find a lot of great companies to support in the community. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining my conversation with Melissa Bradley, founder of 1863 Ventures and co-founder of Eureka. A big thanks to Melissa for sharing the lessons that she's learned in building different companies and empowering a new generation of diverse entrepreneurs. As we close out this episode, I hope you're thinking of how to better support this community, whether that's as a consumer, a founder, or an advocate. Please share this story and join us next week as we continue this series. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.